The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is the Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today, I'm privileged to have with me Jean Murfin. Jean has been a good friend and someone that I've seen evolve and move through different levels within the financial services industry. Jean, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I remember having this conversation with you, I don't know how many years ago, saying you're an influential person, you should maybe do something like this. And here we are, episode 99. It's great fun. Uh, I think I've wanted to give up after every seven episodes. (laughs) How am I going to fit this into life and and how am I going to juggle it? Yet it's now at a point where I think the conversations are starting to have an impact and we start to to see and, and feel the change within this profession. But I want to talk about your experience. Um, so you finished your undergraduate at the University of Western Cape. Uh, let's start there. Like, how did you select finance uh, out of all the various options that you could pick? Yeah, I don't necessarily think I chose it. Um, I started UWC as that whole leaving university or leaving high school as this ambitious person who loves sport, and I went to do sports science first. Um, and I think I was about three, four months into sports science, and I realised. <laughs> When you go to the gym, unfortunately, you know, my what I was studying was what all the personal trainers had. And I was like, well, I don't necessarily want to work in a gym. Not looking at the greater, you know, scheme of things. Uh, <clears throat> dropped out without my family knowing. Um, continued to go to Varsity for two months after that to keep up, you know, appearances and make it look like I was leaving to go to Varsity. And eventually just kind of came out and said to my mom and dad, listen, yeah, I've, I've kind of dropped out. Um, I said, I'll go work for six months and go and pay back what I obviously wasted and then applied for the following year and applied for BCom Accounting and um, went to do it. Um, luckily enough, you know, as the stars aligned, I met my beautiful wife, um, but never liked accounting either. I absolutely dreaded going to accounting and doing, you know, tax and those type of things. Um, and luckily there was a subject in there called financial management. And in there had time value of money and those type of things. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. it brought me back to high school and it goes, John goes to the shop and, you know, um, you know, three hours, he's now there for eight apples, whatever. And you have to work it out. 
and I could do that. It was easy. And I was like, well, you know what? Let me just go down this. Um, switched majors the following year. So technically my third first year. And then fell in love with finance and investments. Um, I was privileged enough to have my kind of professor at that time actually had his own hedge fund entire one billion dollars assets under management exceptionally intelligent man um dr warren brown was also one of our lectures i think he's one of our leading asset managers in the industry or kind of a solution driven asset manager so we had incredible people that kind of cultivated this passion for investments and y'all um went through the whole thing did undergrad actually went into my honors at uwc as well was amazing and then luckily enough there was this you know quite a large asset manager and large platform in industry that did this career readiness programs and I went for a mock interview with them not really wanting to apply for them and they liked what they saw somehow and hired me literally within a week um, so left Varsity and went there immediately. There's quite a few pivotal items that you mentioned there like meeting your wife, like that's that's a big one. And we'll get into how some of those decisions m- might have impacted your career and the approaches that you've taken. And then looking up to these professors, these guys that are that have made it, right? What, when you look at them, what did you take away that you made your own from what they were doing? Like, let's talk about this prof- professor that had the hedge fund or the, the investment background where you said, okay, very successful guys giving back to the industry. Like, how did that inspire you to go into this field? Yeah, I think the one thing was they were humble, um, which is quite an amazing thing. You kind of, we never knew that he had this massive hedge fund. He drove a Jimny. And this old school, kind of not even the new shape, it was like the old shape. Um, he had this Chrysler 300C, you know, it wasn't fancy cars. And he was incredibly intelligent, like seriously intelligent. I even think he's on one of the boards of the CFA institution. Like really, there was Hing Sing Shea was his name. We called him Andy. Um, and it was a pleasure. Um, but obviously sitting with him, the one thing I did realize was I love the investment industry but not necessarily sitting behind the computer screen and analyzing for hours upon hours upon hours because that's what he explained to us is the reality. Um, you know, everyone sees these incredible trades and this, you know, but it's the endless hours of research behind it to make that informed decision. And that was the one thing that I think all of us realized and kind of our class was split most probably in three. We had a group of guys that went into the kind of investment analyst portfolio managers and all of them are doing extremely well. Then we have the group like myself where I think the more, I don't want to say charismatic, but the guys that never like to sit behind a screen, like a screen and get boxed in. So we went into more of the distribution kind of way. And then we had other guys that were quite technical, but never really liked the investment analyst side. And all of them have gone into kind of the IT project management side of the investment industry, which is quite nice. So it was a good spread of us. Um, and I think we all learned from that manager, kind of Andy it was a lovely thing. And he kind of opened our eyes to the investment world in its entirety. It's wonderful that you can actually kind of pick one of these streams, maybe intentionally or unintentionally. And what I'm hearing you say is that that love of people, right? Getting your energy from other people where you don't want to be hidden and you don't want to be sitting behind the screen where that's someone that might put on an expert hat and say, cool, this is, this is where I get energy from. So now you're stepping into your first job. How ready were you for that job leaving university? Yeah, um, that's an interesting one because I look back at it and I think I dreaded the time there, but I also 
treasure the moment um, because we leave university with this beautiful honors degree and then life humbles you very quickly because now all of a sudden you're picking up the phone and you're saying hi it's Sean Murphy how can I help you and um, you have this honors degree you've written your thesis um, I've done exceptionally well at university and now I'm helping people unlock their online accounts um, so that was a quite a humbling experience and kind of bringing me back down to earth um, but it was a thing I needed to do because I think I learned a lot more about myself during that time I realized I don't want to be in front of a computer screen. I was privileged enough that we had conversations with guys in distribution when I was in that role. And I think I immediately kind of fell in love with distribution immediately. Um, I think it's a great space. I think if you kind of work with financial advisors, you end up working with the clients indirectly. Um, and I wanted to be there. Um, I wanted to kind of make an impact whichever way I could. Um, so yeah, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. It sounds like you had a bigger impact or your intention was, hey, I can actually speak to clients, but I can also indirectly help these advisors. What, what were advisors struggling with at that point? So I think that it's, it's interesting because back then, I think the oil price had dropped drastically. Um, all of a sudden, Sasol was not great. People were panicking, um, you know, you've got it's like a flip side you know we look back now the oil is now increased and everyone's at the fueling pump every month because now it's constantly increasing i don't think as humans we're ever happy and um, we always got to worry about something um and i think what we take out of that is oh, don't sweat the small stuff you know play into the long-term investments or you know play into the plan because something's gonna upset the apple cart but if you continue this journey you know you'll do all right but i think back then what was it 2014 um i think it was Oil was the massive one. I remember Sassel was like at an all-time low. Um, we had a company I was working at had extreme, ex or quite a large exposure to Sassel. And I remember every phone call was, oh, you know, your exposure to Sassel is terrible, da-da-da-da-da. But two years before that, everyone loved the exposure to Sassel. It's probably now everyone's loving the exposure because you know, the shares done all right. Um, so it's just an interesting time that we found ourselves in. And it was a good learning curve because all of a sudden I was thrust into this world and now I'm talking about oil and OPEC and, you know, all the stuff that I had no idea about because that's not what I did in my honours. Um, but it was a good learning curve. So things you didn't expect to have conversations around. Tell me how difficult is it to defend someone else's opinion? So now you, you're answering this phone call, you have to talk about something where maybe the, ca the company stands for that or, or maybe not. And you have to relay the message that has been fed to you. How much space do you have for interpreting what John feels about this position? Or how do, how do you navigate those conversations? Um, particularly where it might be something where you disagree with. Yeah, it's a good, very good question. Um, luckily, the companies I worked at are quite good, um, have really good ethical lines. So there hasn't been any of these, you know, shady kind of things happening behind the scenes. So I don't necessarily think I've had to do anything that's against what my own morals are. Um, but I think it's tough. The, the, the worst conversations is chatting to those people in their retirement already. They've saved their whole life and now they've hit retirement and now they look at their quarterly statement and their, you know, returns are down. Um, I think what we used to do then really well was put ourselves in their shoes. And often we used to get ourselves very upset because now you've put yourselves in their shoes, you realized, shame, these people aren't, you know, living how they were. Yes, it doesn't impact them month to month, but they know that they're 
AUMs come in or fall in drastically. So come next revision, they're most probably going to have 10%, 20% less than what they had the previous year. You know, that's without even inflation. Um, so I think that was always the, the difficult one for us in the call center. Um, but it was putting ourselves in the clientship, sympathizing with them, you know, kind of helping them stay the course, speaking about this funds that they're in and saying, you know, group managers, you know, they're doing what they need to do. This is just unfortunately like a blip in the ocean, you know. It's, yes, it looks terrible now, but if you zoom out like anything, zoom out, you'll kind of see it, the line is a little bit smoother. But it's tough, I think, at that point of it, your own money to kind of take yourself out of it. So would these be direct clients uh, or would these be advised clients, right? So they're phoning in, they're saying, this is what I'm struggling with. Please help me understand. Yeah, so I think it was both. So when I started, it was a direct line. So not intermediated clients at all. And it's always interesting because intermediated clients don't, I wouldn't say don't know much, but they're not as well informed. Mm. Um, so it was often a more of educational discussion and you had to take them to the fun fact sheets and speak about, you know, what is their investment philosophy and what type of, are you in a growth investment? Are you in a value investment, you know? And often that was way above the, you know, level that they were used to. And then <clears throat> speaking to intermediated clients was completely different. They kind of had a plan. You just had to bring them back to the plan. And often we would refer them back to their advisor and say, you clearly have a financial advisor. You've done a financial plan. Contact your advisor. We can tell you the factual information, what's going on about the fund. But your advisor will obviously be able to kind of stop you from doing that silly decision. I think Cole Richards always says that one beautiful drawing of his, it's the difference between me and my advisor is the next silly mistake. You know, that's what he's meant to do. Um, so we just used to get them to go back to their financial advisors. And that can be tricky, right? Especially if the financial advisor might have done something questionable where you don't necessarily agree with it. And, and it, I would imagine that it must be a tricky space to sit in because you have one opportunity, one phone call with one piece of information and you're not seeing this person. What type of training went into, into getting that right? I mean, the business that you work for, they, are, they have a great reputation around not dropping the ball. So I'm curious around what the training looked like. Yeah, so that was also great. I eventually trained those guys in the call center. So I know exactly how it is firsthand. So... It was intensive. It was three months of assessments on every single product. Um, it was assessments on kind of general soft skills. And then before they even went live, we had scenarios planned out. So we had an aggressive client phoning in that, you know. But the best thing about it was they knew that they were going to, on that day, they were having these phone calls but they wouldn't know who they were speaking to in the company. So we used to get random people in the company to phone with a script and then say to them, you are an aggressive client and go crazy. Like to the point, um, like people would like start crying on these mock phone calls because you got intense because we were trying to get them ready for when they're on those phone calls. Because the problem is once you're on the phone call, we don't know what's being thrown at you. We can't kind of curate this whole discussion someone could phone in running a lock unlocking a secure site or someone could phone in saying they've just lost their mother help them wind up or get the paperwork to wind up the estate it's very difficult um, so we ran through all these scenarios for about three months and then when they went on the phone they had on like a person shadowing them so literally there was someone sitting next to them with headphones on 
um, with a notepad and going, okay, cool, say this, do this. So there was a lot of kind of, you know, holding hands, but it was holding hands, not because we never trusted them, it was going, we don't know what's been thrown at you. So we're trying our hardest to kind of help you. That's wonderful to hear that. And so helpful thinking about running a small team. Because I think very few financial advisors have the time and the resources and the energy to train their staff in that manner. And I want to know in your current role where you get to speak to a lot of advisors, what are the general sense around hiring people and training them? Do you see practices doing it really well? Or most people just throwing mud at a wall and saying, hey, who's going to stick? Um, and those people figure out uh, their role, especially in the independent advice market. Yeah, I think it's a it's a... It's an interesting one. From support staff, I think a lot of guys, in my opinion, are starting to go towards kind of support hubs, you know, businesses that do professional administration because the guys don't necessarily know if, you know, a person may have helped you on the investment side, but running a short-term business or running a life business requires different set of skills. And I don't think, as you said, advisor has the capability, not capability, but the capacity mm-hmm. to vet those things it's you know you're not you're not a director has a massive hr team that can do all of these background checks you're most probably most of the time an individual um so most of the time from the sports side guys are hiring administration really capable administration companies that have proven track records on the advice side i think it's you know it's a bit of both um sometimes there's a guy that comes straight out of varsity and he has this beautiful three-letter word behind his name cfp and they immediately think he can become an advisor because he's a certified financial planner, you know? You should know everything exactly. already. You should know how to do it. Um, but I think with the latest, you would see now with the latest kind of certification changes, I think people are realizing that just having the CFP behind your name doesn't necessarily mean you can give advice. You know, you haven't really done a financial plan properly in your kind of studies. But we assume this. Um, you assume that because I've got these incredible qualifications, I can do the job. It just means that I'm I'm competent. It doesn't necessarily mean I have the soft skills and hard skills to be able to sit in front of a client and give life-changing decisions. Um, and then you get those guys that, you know, have worked 15, 20 years. And you see it in my industry where I'm currently in distribution. The guys who move out of distribution, so they've, you know, 15 years experience as you know, they're leaving at 35, 40 years old, and then they shift to become an advisor. So they have 15 years of kind of talking with advisors, understanding what the day-to-day is, and then they go and work with a financial advisor. So as I said, there's a bit of both, um, and you know, there's no right or wrong. It's quite interesting to say that there's these multiple avenues to becoming an advisor, and, and you took a stab at kind of spending some time in advice, and we'll come back to that. But I want to know, these guys that are leaving distribution, you know, maybe they have 15, 20 years experience, how quickly do they get to build a sustainable business? Do you see that they have a, a faster runway than someone maybe that have that have maybe move from another profession, right? So let's say they were maybe a teacher, very successful, um, but now I've said, okay, I want to change in career and I want to, want to do something else. Like, do you see a significant time frame for them to build up a sustainable business? Yeah, the one thing you do notice quite quickly is that if you're 20 year old, and it's a sad reality, you could be the most intelligent person on planet Earth. But if you go to that 50-year-old or 60-year-old 
and you want to do a financial mm. plan, they look at you and they go, you know, you're not wet behind the ears. You know, you haven't really lived life. You haven't gone through those things, which is fair enough. You know, there is a bit of that life skills and stuff that you have to go through. I think the guys that have got 10 years, 15 years of whatever experience, teaching and stuff, they've got time. They've seen things. They've, you know, been through different cycles. They've seen different market conditions, whether it is in their own kind of financial services sector, but they've also seen it from how it impacts people. Um, the one benefit you do get if you're in the professional, you know, whatever professional field for 15 years, your networks are generally quite large. Mm -hmm. So you've already built up this good network. So when you go back to that professional network that you were part of, the guys are most probably a little easier and will kind of come to you. Um, because think about it, you kind of finish university 22, <laughs> 15 years experience, you're leaving at 37. So 37 years old, you know, you go into a client that's only 50, it's 13 years older than you. They're not looking at you as like you're their kid. Yeah. You yeah. know, you that guy that can help them make a decision that they have to make in five years time when they potentially retire. You're in the inner circle. Exactly. You, you have people and, you know, we often hear that from people joining insurers where they get this list of 100 people and when you just leave university those other 100 people also don't have money yeah. so how do you find clients starting out like i want to talk a little bit about your move into advice and of what worked and what didn't work so yeah. tell us a little bit about that transition away from a kind of a, a let's call it a cushy uh, yeah. job into actually the the cold face like seeing clients directly <laughs> Yeah, so it's an interesting one because everyone asks me that question because they can see it. You know, you go look on any of my professional profiles, you can see I've moved from a cushy job to this scary world of advice. Um, the reason I moved wasn't to become, oh, you know, I want to become a financial planner and be an incredible thing. It was when I was starting out, I think I was maybe 26, 27. You know, I'm having to look after guys who have a book's excess of a billion. You know, it's very difficult to say to a 27 year old, go in and do practice management. What is practice management? I have no idea. What's compliance? No idea. I just go in and tell them this is the fund and we have great administration or, you know, do this or do that. That's what I thought, you know. And then you start realizing, you know, the, the, kind of distribution models moving away from purely being this, you know, admin jockey to being so much greater. You're there for practice management. You're there for HR discussions. You're there. You kind of are their one-stop shop. And at 27, I must be honest, I sat there going, oh, I don't really, no, I can't really, I can maybe tell a guy that has a hundred thousand rand book, maybe, but those big advisors out there with that billion rand plus book, no. Um, and luckily at that time, you know, LinkedIn's incredible. And there was, you know, I got, I chatted to a couple of people on my network and moved into a tied space. And I was like, well, let me give this a shot. Um, you know, it was very difficult for me because, you know, I'm moving as only working independence and I'm going to become a tied advisor. And there was that taboo on it. You know, there was this whole thing in the industry when I was moving as tied advice, you know, it's scary. Um, but I had a great stable of products. Um, and when I started, it was, they asked me that 100 people list. And like anyone, when I put my 100 list, I looked down at this thing and I went, 40 of these people are my family. Like, I don't necessarily want to do business with my family. Like, I love them to bits, but you know, I don't want to do, I don't want to see their stuff because you go to family Brian, all of a sudden it's not a family Brian anymore. So, oh, Jean, can you help me with this or do this? It blurs the lines. That. Exactly. Yeah. And then like you said, my other 60 were all the guys I was at school with, you know, like I knew they never had money. You know, they were all kind of, 
most probably some of them staying at home, some of them overseas enjoying their life, some of them on a yacht, they don't want to invest. So my strategy there was, well, look at my immediate circle, where can I find a gap? Um, and I think that's maybe in, before you're alluding to my wife. Um, my wife became a teacher and there was this opportunity there that, you know, looking at my wife and seeing this advice she got um, or lack thereof, you know, whatever you want. And I may be rude in saying that, but we would often have discussions. She would ask me, you know, like, how's your pension fund going or how's this? And I was like, but you have a pension fund. Like, surely someone's coming to you on a yearly basis at least and just giving you an update. And it turned out no one was. So my strategy was, well, hey, you know, teachers are incredible human beings. They do incredible work. Um, most of them have a pension fund as a governing body through a school. So let's go and talk to them. Let's go and see if I can make appointments. But what I found out really quickly is doing anything in employee benefits is not like a week and you're going to get a yes. It's going through governing bodies and you have to wait for when they sit because they don't just sit every other week. So I learned a lot. Um, and it was enjoyable. Um, so that's how I kind of, I looked at my immediate circle and said, well, where can I make the most change and the quickest change and the most effective change? So yeah, um, uh, we're targeted schools. Well done for taking that leap. Cause I think even though it was super scary, that's probably what you needed to do to grow, to say, these are the areas where I don't feel I can add like, so much value walking into someone's business and say, are you doing this now? Are you doing that? And yet when you take that jump, like there is no guarantee, right? There's no guarantee that this will be a successful career. Can we talk about the space where you had to make a decision around, hey, do I stick this out or do I go and look for an alternative? You shared with me a story beforehand and, and I was wondering if you'd be able to repeat that. Yeah, so it was an interesting time. Um, I think it was November, December. My wife came to me and said, I'm an advisor and I said, bear this in mind, like, you know, anyone that's listening to this, you earning commission. Yes, I had a basic, but I didn't even think my basic at that time covered my bond. Um, it was not even, you know, so it was like that may cover my medical aid and whatever I did after that kind of covered the bond and gave us food and stuff like that. So my wife and myself had made the decision that, you know, should we have, you know, bake beans on toast we will do that you know that's our decision we will kind of sacrifice together to hopefully you know progress along this career and my wife came to me november december and said you know you know love good news bad news whichever way you want to take it and i think we were married for about three years at the time and she's like i'm pregnant and immediately you kind of get super happy and you kind of hug and kiss and love everything and like a typical man the wife goes to sleep and you sit up awake and go well i'm gonna pay for this you know i've got this other human being coming in bearing in mind i think that month i must have earned a commission of like 100 rand or 200 rand and i think i got that the month before so you kind of sit there going you know is it selfish of me bringing a human into this world um my wife and myself made the decision to sacrifice but my son never made that decision we you know so i looked at this i still had a couple of months most probably 15 months 16 months in my contract that i got a little bit of a basic so it was a good deal and i just said you know what um as it sat there i became extremely risk averse i became you know i was always this risk taker you know jumping from a cushy job into a thing i would have done that in a heartbeat now i've got this beautiful little boy coming 
you know, I've got to provide for him. So it was a scary thing. I think I must probably jumped a bit too soon. Looking back at it now, it was definitely too soon. But I'm extremely happy, you know, to look at the decision I've made, you know, five years later, I don't necessarily think I would have changed anything. Maybe if I stayed a little longer, maybe my journey would have gone somewhere else. But I don't, you know, I'm not upset about anything. It's so beautiful how that parallels the way clients typically approach advisors, right? Something's happening in their life. It's impacting their finances and they have to make a decision. Who could you bounce that idea off of? Like, was that something you internalized and said, okay, this is something for Jean and his family to figure out? Or did you get some external information? Like, how did you validate that decision in hindsight? Yeah, I don't know. I actually think I must probably had a conversation with you. I don't know if you remember it. I don't know. We must have had a coffee. We I bounced most probably off you. And then my wife's uncle is also really prominent in the financial services sector. And I bounced it with him because I know that he's more risk averse than what I am. And he kind of said to me, you know what? You've made the decision. You know, your primary job now is as a man, look after your children. So whether that is go back into corporate or make it a success as an advisor, that was the decision. Um, and you know, like humans, we generally take the road of least resistance. So I went with corporate, you know, um, it was safer for me. As I said, I became hella risk averse. Um, you know, all of a sudden I'm now this person that's now worrying about medical aid and gap cover and all these things that was never on my mind. I'm now reading the terms and conditions and making sure that my son's covered and all those type of things. It was things I never worried about. Such a nice way to just make sure that when you go into advice that you set yourself up for success, right? So you've said, cool, I have a two-year runway, there's enough time, but then life happens and it's okay, right? It's okay to explore something else and then say, well, maybe some roads lead back to advice or it leads to a different area. I think we still see this assumption that everyone wants to become an advisor Yet when you said earlier, there's three tracks that you can take, right? You can go into the ops, the IT side, you can go into um, kind of the analyst side. Are you seeing more career avenues for people in financial services than, you know, just becoming an advisor? Yeah, I think it is. I think financial services is pretty much exploding at the moment. People may not think it, but if you look back 15 years ago versus where we are today, there's how many more unit trust managers out there? You know, that means there's how many more jobs available because every single one of those collective investment schemes, they don't just run solo. There's a HR there, there's an ops team there, there's this guy, there's that guy. That's job creation. So, you know, there's those guys sitting in advice now going, oh, I want to become this. The, the problem is we often limit ourselves because we watch a movie or we know this one person and we only think that's the place to go. And I often say to guys is, you know, in your final year or something, contact multiple people in the financial service sector. Look at your LinkedIn, type in the company you want to go to and all of a sudden you realize there's like a hundred different, you know, um, job descriptions or job names and then you start realizing very quickly that oh my word it's not just limited to this investment analyst you know there's a whole bunch of different jobs out there they might have common skill sets or, or might require a common skill set but being an internal compliance officer versus being a consultant like two very different yeah. people that that tend to do that 
So you spoke a little bit about the employee benefit side and how that would have been a great opportunity to potentially unlock clients. What was the challenges other than the time of decision? Like, do you think the market is catering in the right way for these groups, for people to deliver or receive quality advice at scale? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I don't necessarily think the market, um, I think legislation makes it more difficult. Um, legislation's becoming, there's a benefit for it. We're trying to protect clients, but we make it extremely difficult to do business and it becomes more expensive to do business. Um, so all of a sudden, if I now hire this Jean Murphy in the business, I need him to write so much business because I need to cover all of those costs. Um, where, as most probably back in the day, yes, it was cowboy season, but there wasn't anything out there. You can go and sign a person for 500 rand every other day. Today, I don't think necessarily people want to do that um, because I, I, how am I going to make money off 500 rand debit order and make five rand a month? You know, that's not going to cover anything. Um, so there's that, I think it's a catch 22. You trying to, you know, I think financial services and kind of agency forces and advice companies are trying to do good. Um, but guys starting out brand new, you know, they have to have some sort of leads. Yes. Work for it. Bear that. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, give them six months to see what they can do. And then you give it to the better guys because you still need to convert those leads, but there is still help that's needed. You know, whether it's joining as a succession to financial advisory practice, I don't necessarily think that's been done enough. You know, is there a way that young advisors hitting the industry registered with one of the, you know, many kind of boards that are out there, surely they could be speaking to succession networks and stuff like that and kind of match and play matchmaker. Um, often we find that these independents sit in isolation and, they have to go and figure it out themselves and their compliance office banging down the door and saying, where's your succession? You know, surely there's guys out there that can play matchmaking. We know where the youngster is. We know where the older aging practices are. Let's start putting people together. And I think that's how you help this industry. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I do ever hear a lot people saying, how do I, how do I keep this person, right? I can get them in my business. I've tried it once or twice or three times. They stay for a year, two years, maybe three years. And then one of the banks pick them up or yeah. one of the insurers pay them an amount that I cannot afford to mm. pay them. Given that you have had some of these discussions, what do you think are the things that are missing in those roles where maybe an, a, an aging practice can compete with? Like if it's not on the, on the monetary side, like what is it that we could give people to say, hey, this, this is something that you can, can work for that will make sure that you actually stay within that business. Yeah, I think it's, it's tough. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think I have the, the silver bullet, um, but often the discussions that I've had with guys is to try to find like-minded individuals. So that's often tough as well. So often when the guy leaves, they come in and they, they, they get told, they get sold the dream. You know, this youngster comes in and he's 28, maybe in 30 odd, right? He gets sold the dream by the, by the more experienced KI who's now got all the clients and he's got the 500 clients, whatever it is, and his book is doing extremely well. He sells the dream to a young advisor like any company is going to do. When you want good talent, you sell a dream. You know, it's for us that's starting in the business to kind of look through the smoke and mirrors and see if it, if, if, what is this, you know? I think what you do then is 
you got to have some sort of a binding agreement or, you know, any new client or whether it's a fixed salary, you know, I think that's a great one. It kind of removes that barrier. If I get a proper decent-ish fixed salary, yes, can advisors afford it? Most probably not. But that's why I say there must be someone out there, like a regulatory body or something, that it has a vested interest in this. And I think we know who we're talking about. So there's many companies out there that have vested interest in financial advisors doing well. So there must be some sort of a funding thing that can help these aging books fund these guys for five years or 10 years or whatever it is, so that they can get through that initial hump. And then they can, you know, hire them. Um, and then it's a proper handover, you know, and that can take five years, but it's a proper handover. You know, I'm going with you to every single one of your clients and we eventually, you know, exit the industry. A sustainable succession. I think what's missing still in South Africa is that the funding mechanism, like yeah. you rightly said, at a reasonable price. Yeah. You see people willing to give you money, but you know they're going to charge you 25, 26%, and then it doesn't make sense, right? So yeah. at, a, at a reasonable price. Yeah. There's a lot that you have learned over the last, how many years? How many years has this now been that you- I think almost 10 years. So, so the I, last I decade. I've, I think I've now just got past it, like, you know, I'm not just this newbie in the industry. I've now got yeah, almost a decade, you say. So you're looking back, you're, you're kind of connecting these pieces. But what happens when we look forward? Like, where do you see Jean 10 years from now? Is that back in the advisor seat? Uh, and I won't hold you to this. We might listen to this episode 10 years from now. But is that back in the advisor seat? Is it uh, making a massive difference in practices? Is it running a multinational business? Yeah, I don't. I think I've stopped thinking 10 years plus because life changes very quickly. Um, the one thing I've realized is that I most probably am still going to stay in corporate. Um, I think I've got strengths there. Um, you realize a lot about yourself when you become an advisor. Um, but I enjoy the corporate side of it. I think there's a lot of change you can make there. Um, and hey, maybe one day I'll be running a big successful company or a distribution force. Um, but I definitely still want to work with financial advisors. Um, sometimes, you know, people say, like you said in the beginning, you know, every seventh episode, I think it's like me, you know, every seventh phone call I get about, about the same question, I want to kind of exit the industry, but it's still rewarding at the end of the day. These relationships are ever evolving and becoming better and stronger. And I think it's, you know, I want to be in this industry. Um, I think personally, that's that. And business-wise, it's interesting. I think five to 10 years time, um, we had the whole debate for the last five years of active versus passive. And it was this whole, it was every article, every roadshow you went to. And then fast forward, like now to present time, it's no longer a verse discussion. It's a and, you know, I'm including passives into my solutions. And I think the next five years is the interesting one is AI. You know, is it a verse discussion? Are we, should we be against as a financial services company or should we embrace it as an industry? Um, and that's going to be the interesting one to play out. I'm telling guys that embrace it, learn about it, enjoy it, because it can most probably make your life easier. But, you know, it's, I don't think we should be thinking about verse anymore. Any scenario that comes up, we always put it up against and we say it's either or, you know. We know in the advice space, it's not either or, it's and, it's inclusive, it's, you know. So yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting one. There's going to be a couple of themes playing out in the next five to 10 years. And I know we've got to be, we've got to look forward to enjoying it. It's definitely a more nuanced question to say, how much of each, where, like, yeah. how do we do this? As opposed to, you know, those binary outcomes, do we include it or don't we? I know that you run quite a few successful social events. Um, 
Talk us through a little bit of the things that have been beneficial in in your career. What is what has worked? Is golf events one of them that uh, that has converted into business? Yeah, so it actually has. Um, we we run a very I won't say successful golfing network, but it's a golfing network. We try to get together once a month like-minded individuals, individuals in the industry, whether it's other asset managers, um, advisors, we have guys from you know other financial services companies in the greater schemes, they come and play along with us. But it's I think it's from an advisor space, they seem to enjoy it, the younger guys as well. We've seen a lot of the older advisors, I don't want to say older in the age, but the experience, the guys that have been through everything, and some ex-financial planners of the year that play with us. And it's so nice watching those more experienced advisors willing to share with the youngsters like it's not competition um, and that's the thing i enjoy the most about is getting these people into play golf you would think they're compet- competitors but financial advisors are great you know they're always willing to chat and have a conversation and it's bringing some fun back into the financial services sector um, i don't think i started when i started you know the fun financial services was done um, back in the day 20 years ago 25 years ago you hear about all the crazy things that used to happen and the trips and those type of things but it was fun um, i think there's so much compliance and so much legislative updates and so many business updates that guys just get stuck in their day-to-day and you got to have a little bit of fun you know whether it's golf or lunch or you know a wine farm whatever it is but you've got to bring that fun element into it makes it more memorable at the end of the day and it opens people up to have a conversation because it's not just business 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 i need to get to know the individual because like yourselves as financial advisors you're not going to walk up to a client immediately on the first meeting and say give me 10 million invest yes maybe it will happen because they've researched you over the last year but you also have to get to know the client. You don't just, you have two, three, four meetings where you're building up the trust with the client and eventually the client gives you that money. It's exact same as outside with the financial advisors. We play, we want to partner alongside them. So we've got to get to know them on a personal level as well as, you know, a professional level. Thank you for bringing back the fun into financial services. It's something that I think a lot of people think this this is the most boring topic in the world and I never want to talk about it. They want to think about it. And then the other element is, it's lonely as an individual advisor, someone sitting by themselves. I remember those first couple of years, like literally myself and a round table. Uh, it's lonely. You have no one to bounce ideas off of. And, and just being in the presence of someone else maybe gets you through that week so that you can continue in advice. Or it maybe opens your eyes and you say, well, actually, there's a different career path. And thank you, Jean. This, this has been wonderful to hear about the alternative routes that someone can take. So hopefully someone listening to this today says, wow, actually, I don't only have to be an advisor and there's many different routes. And I'm also allowed to change my mind as things happen. Is there any parting wisdom that you want to leave with younger advisors that might be listening to this that uh, uh, would be beneficial to them? Yeah, I think as a younger advisors is keep your eyes open for an opportunity. Um, often we close ourselves up to that 500 Rand or 1,000 Rand or 10,000 Rand because we want that 10 million. But people had to start somewhere. Um, and that 5,000 or 500 debit order, they may have a significant other or a parent or someone that is doing well. They may open that door for you to go see there. That shouldn't be your, you know, your ulterior motive to go there. But if you're doing good, solid advice and you're kind of helping people where you can, 
you know, they will open doors for you because they always say, you know, word of mouth is the best form of marketing. So if you do a good job with this client in front of you, they will open that door and be patient. It's a long game. Um, they always say 24 months. So get past that 24 months. Um, and generally it's a lot better, but you've got to get to that 24 months. Um, it's tough. But do it. It's a fantastic. It really is fantastic. I see it with advisors all the time. It's an incredibly rewarding career path. Um, you get to see proper significant change. And advisors are dream protectors at the end of the day. You know, you are helping secure legacy for years to come, which is amazing. What a lovely way to end. Thank you so much, Sean. All the best for your future career. Uh, and I'll definitely have you back 10 years from now. We can reflect on the next decade. Thanks so much, Louis. Have a lovely one. <laughs>